Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, January 5th, 2024. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew, and Happy New Year. Hey there, Chris, and Happy New Year to you. We can lead off for 2024, Andrew, in Iowa, where publishers and Freedom to Read advocates closed out 2023 with a major legal victory. Yeah, it's always nice to start a new year with a victory, and that is exactly what publishers and Freedom to Read advocates got in Iowa, where a federal judge blocked key provisions of SF-496, which is a recently passed Iowa state law that sought to ban books with any sexual content from Iowa schools and to bar entirely uh, classroom discussion of gender identity and sexuality for students below the seventh grade. Uh, Our listeners will recall that bill was signed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds back in May, and it was set to go into full effect on January 1. Uh, But it was challenged in two separate suits filed at the end of November, one led by the ACLU and another led by publisher Penguin Random House. And in an example, I think, of the wheels of justice grinding with, shall we say, a little pace, uh, Judge Stephen Locher held a hearing on the lawsuits just before Christmas And on December 29th, came back with an emphatic decision to issue preliminary injunctions blocking enforcement of two of the real key provisions of the law, which I might add was not an uncomplicated mission, right? And this was a very well-written and complex decision, which you apparently did over the Christmas holiday. So the decision, I think, is really good news again for publishers and freedom to read advocates. And I'll also point out that this is the third of these new state book banning laws passed under the guise of, you know, parental rights to be found unconstitutional in the last six months, along with laws in Arkansas and, of course, HB 900 in Texas, that case, which is still in front of an appeals court. Uh, So that's three for three so far for publishers and freedom to read advocates challenging these new state laws. Of course, I also want to note right up top here that there's really not much celebrating going on in Iowa this week where a school shooting has devastated the state. So my thoughts are really with Iowans uh, over this tragedy. And, you know, I'm a a little outside my lane here, but I can't help thinking that if only legislators who claim to want to protect children were as interested in addressing the threat posed by firearms as they are with books, we'd be much better off. In your reporting for PW, Andrew, you examined the ruling and noted that the judge was clear enough regarding the ban on books with sexual content, but less so with the anti-LGBTQ provisions. Yeah, so it was a 49-page opinion and order, and in there, Stephen, Judge Stephen Locher really he criticized the law as incredibly broad uh, and acknowledged that it has already resulted in the preemptive removal of hundreds of books from school libraries, history books, classic works of fiction, Pulitzer Prize winning contemporary novels, you name it, across the board. All of this stuff pulled in the wake of the law uh, because you can't have any depictions of sex acts. And Locher found that those provisions were so sweeping that they were unlikely to satisfy the First Amendment under, and I'll quote him here, any standard of scrutiny. In fact, in a rebuke, in fact, there's one of sev- this is one of several rebukes in the opinion, Locher said he was unable to locate a single case upholding the constitutionality of a school library restriction even remotely similar to the law, uh, to SF-496. Locher went on to say that state lawmakers had sought to impose a puritanical pall of orthodoxy over school libraries with the law. And in a really notable section, 
not only for Iowa, but for um, laws that we've seen emerge across the country, Locher suggested that the law was a solution in search of a problem. He noted that the state didn't present any evidence that student access to books that depicted sex acts of any kind was creating any significant problems in schools, much less to the degree that would give rise to the kind of substantial and reasonable governmental interest that would require such an across-the-board removal of books. At best, he said, the state presented evidence that some parents found the content in a handful of books to be objectionable. And that's just not going to get a ban like this done for sure. As to the law's restrictions on instruction relating to gender, identity, and sexual orientation, this is where things got complex and where the, the decision was a little bit tricky. In his ruling, Judge Locher sought to clarify, two what he called severe misunderstandings about what the law actually says. Now, because this law was so vaguely, so broadly written, we've seen, you know, as I noted before, librarians and teachers pulling books from schools and libraries. But they don't need to, Locher said, because nothing in the text of the law restricts the ability of school officials to engage with issues of gender identity and sexual orientation, at least with students in grade seven and above. There's no restrictions at all. Uh, and as for students in grade six and below, Locher noted that the plain text of the law actually doesn't distinguish between say, cisgender or transgender identity or gay or straight relationships. Uh, while opponents of this bill have often described it as a don't say gay bill or a don't say trans bill, based on the plain language of the statute, Locher said, it's actually a don't say anything bill. And that means that the law is so wildly overbroad that it was he voided it for vagueness under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment because, he goes on to explain, this law was so vague that the state would basically have unfettered discretion to decide when it wanted to enforce a law and against whom, making it all but impossible for any reasonable person to know what will or will not lead to punishment. Again, I think this is a key point because it emphasizes uh, that this law was really not written to address a real problem, but it was written for political purposes. That's clearly the subtext in Locher's opinion, because all the parties in this lawsuit acknowledged that the, the state was trying to target the LGBTQ community, but they also understood that such discrimination would be so blatantly unconstitutional that they tried really hard to make it content neutral. So hard, in fact, that they wrote a law so vague that it banned any talk of gender and sexuality and thus was void for vagueness. It would be comical if it wasn't so well, I guess threatening. <laughs> anyway, we'll now wait to hear whether the state will appeal. But for now, the law is enjoined while this case makes its way through the court, where, based on this decision, it's very likely that Judge Locher is going to strike the law down. In our last program for 2023, you noted the retirement of Jim Milliot, PW's editorial director over recent years. He's already back, though, with a column looking at the top book business stories of 2023. Yeah, it's a really good piece, Jim, in his new role as editor-at-large and still very much a part of my daily routine and a part of PW. So, yeah, no surprise, the top of the list for the top stories of 2023, book banners, right? And the industry's efforts to turn the tide. And spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about this again at the top of the list next year when we round up 2024. And before we get there... Uh, buckle up, I'm afraid, because this election year, I have a feeling is going to be a bruiser. Uh, you know, despite getting, you know, 
decked in court at virtually every turn. I expect that this parental rights issue that's motivated these book ban laws is going to hang around because it really motivates and speaks to you know, the Trump-era GOP base. And I'm afraid it motivates voters, at least primary voters. I think it's not as popular with most Americans. So let's hope by the time the general election rolls around in November, this issue is finally driven off center stage. Anyway, the piece is great. It's on the PW site now. Jim's done a great job encapsulating beyond book banning what was actually a very busy year in the business with a lot of stories, including the reorganization of Hachette, which saw uh, UK CEO David Shelley take the reins from Michael Peach. Uh, Michael Peach will now serve as chairman for this year before retiring. There was also a big reorganization at Penguin Random House with just a slew of major players taking buyouts, you know, including editors like Ann Close and Rick Cotton, and Paul Slovak and Wendy Wolf. And uh, these moves were also accompanied by summer layoffs that CEO Niar Malavia said were needed to offset rising costs. And of course, there was the, the division of the Random House Publishing Group into two separate operations. So that was a huge story for 2023. Of course, Simon & Schuster found a new home, right? Private equity firm KKR, Jim writes about that. KKR bought Simon & Schuster for $1.62 billion. That deal closed on at the end of October. And HarperCollins downsized. You know, they initiated a 5% across-the-board workforce cut in what Brian Murray, uh, the CEO of HarperCollins, called a transformation of the company that was designed to identify new ways to work and to work smarter and more efficiently. On the other side, the positive side, Harper did manage to reach a deal with his union in February, which ended a three-month strike. Plenty more stuff on the list, uh, including an antitrust suit against Amazon, right? There's a major copyright ruling in the Internet Archive case, and the rise of AI, uh, which really has the industry, I think, at once energized and terrified. And again, all of these are stories I think that we're going to be talking about throughout the year and definitely talking about next year when we do the year-end roundup for 2024. Right after Christmas, Andrew, the New York Times filed a copyright infringement suit against OpenAI for using Times content without permission in the training of ChatGPT. Whichever way the suit goes, publishers of all sorts will feel the impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sort of justifying where AI landed on Jim's list, right? Up high at number two, uh, this suit from the New York Times in many ways feels like it's an important suit to watch, but at the same time, it feels like it's built on the same uncertain copyright ground that many legal experts have told me probably isn't going to work. But the other thing, too, is that this case sort of feels like part of a negotiation, right? We know the Times has been in discussions with both OpenAI and Microsoft about trying to, you know, get some sort of licensing deal. Anyway, I think this case definitely articulates some of the policy concerns that we really need to be, you know, talking about and focusing in on. Uh, and that this case suggests that the unlawful, so they say, use of the time's work to create artificial intelligence products, the training of these products, yields a product that actually competes with the very reporting that the Times does and threatens the Times' ability to produce that reporting in the first place. But then, you know, as I know, the complaint, it makes no bones about the fact that the Times was in talks with both companies for a license deal, and then negotiations broke down, and here we are with this suit. So it really sounds to me like, you know, the Times was sort of angling for a deal like the one the Associated Press and Axel Springer got, probably for a lot more money, and that things just kind of broke down. In any case, for me, the suit really drives home the very salient point about what AI can enhance 
and what AI can threaten. And there's a quote here from the suit that I think really speaks to that. Uh, The suit says, making great journalism is harder than ever. If the Times and other news organizations cannot produce and protect their independent journalism, there will be a vacuum that no computer or artificial intelligence can fill. And while that seems a little heavy for a copyright case, it's a really good point nonetheless. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor. Thanks for joining me today with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on CCC's podcast, Sage Policy Profiles from Sage Publishing and Overton lets researchers uncover the influence their evidence-based research may have on public policy. Sage's Camille Gamboa tells me that the new tool is a way to calculate a real-world impact factor. Sage Policy Profiles was intended to allow researchers to easily see where their work is being used in the real world, and specifically in global policy, and then illustrate and share that work's impact graphically. Since we're simply reporting on the trail of citations, there are no calculations involved. That said, the data the tool presents provides a rich narrative and a more complete picture of research impact than citation-based metrics alone. A real-world impact factor, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for joining me. Mm -hmm.